Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to episode three of Coffee and Services. This week I'm talking to Zena Kamash, who's a lecturer at Royal Holloway in Roman archaeology. We're talking a lot about her specialism in terms of heritage and what it means, uh, particularly in the modern day in areas such as the Near East and the likes of Syria in Iraq. Zena herself is half Iraqi, so it's a, an area of the world that she has a very close connection with. And we're talking about things like what should we do in terms of reconstructions? Should we do reconstructions? A couple of years ago, she was uh, directing the Postcards to Palmyra project, where some of you may have seen the big replica of the arch from Palmyra that was destroyed by ISIS, uh, reconstructed in London and put in Trafalgar Square. And Zena was there with some of her students getting people to write about it on postcards, uh, what they felt about it. And um, she outlines some of the criticisms she has of the reconstruction of the arch, uh, but also talking a lot about things like the recent film that's been doing the rounds, The Destruction of Memory. Um, she talks about her feelings on that. We also talk a little bit about, well, actually talk a lot about her work in terms of monuments appearing in photographs, particularly from the 1800s onwards up to the modern day. Her own area of research takes it up to TripAdvisor, looking at how monuments are portrayed in photographs through that media. But we really get into how they're portrayed now in the kind of world of Instagram and also to some extent Tinder as well. But I just found that a really fascinating conversation. I'm really interested in the biography of a monument. And does it really matter if somebody doesn't know what a monument means when they take a picture of it or takes a picture of themselves next to it? We're also going to be talking about how she thinks... Uh, we could diversify social media, make it more inclusive for people when talking about archaeology and heritage, uh, and also her work in, in regards to water, uh, particularly water in the Near East, the use of water, dams, aqueducts, latrines, etc. Uh, and also there was something else that we discussed, and I can't recall what it was. Oh, that was it. We talked about memory as well. And... Yeah, it's a really great conversation. Uh, I really hope you enjoy it. Um, before we head on into the conversation, a few announcements. I probably should have spun this one out last week and just completely didn't think about doing it. Uh, so my bad, but we had a visiting professor from Germany uh, last week at the University of Kent, Werner Eck, uh, a very esteemed colleague of ours, uh, who gave a lecture on the Lost Augustan province beyond the east of the Rhine. Werner spoke about that uh, and his research involving that. I mean, he is, he's been around for a long, 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 long time. Uh, he has a tremendous uh, bibliography. He's written tons of books, articles, etc. He's a very knowledgeable bloke. Also, just a just a really nice guy. Really, really friendly guy as well. But he did that lecture for us here at Kent. Uh, it's now up online though. If you want to view it in retrospect, I would suggest doing so. It's really interesting. And uh, to make amends for forgetting to advertise Werner's lecture on here, I just want to point out that on Thursday the 6th of December, we have a double header here at Kent. First of all, Anna Lampadaridi uh, is going to be talking about the life of St. Porphyry, um, who was a saint in Gaza in the uh, 5th century, I think, and was quite the fan of having temples demolished as well. Um, and then alongside Anna, there's going to be Brian Ward Perkins, so we'll have about an hour break in between with a reception, and then it'll be Brian Ward Perkins from Oxford talking about his most recent project on the cult of the saints. So both um, both projects are uh, very much late antique based. So it's my jam, man. It's my jam. 
Um, so I'm really looking forward to that and hopefully you can join us. So, right, thank you very much for joining me and on with the show. central london change get the underground change get the yeah. train out to reading but... and that means that you can't just sit and kind of read or mark or whatever it is you yeah need to do, so it's quicker just to drive do you find you do a lot of work on when you're in in transit or well i drive so, oh yeah so no <laughs> <laughs> mostly concentrate on the, <laughs> the best for the best yeah um so what 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 sort of stuff are you you working on at the moment? Are you still you're still focusing on Syria and uh, cultural heritage in Syria? Yes, yeah, so Syria and Iraq. Um, so my main focus at the moment is uh, uh, cultural heritage, uh, particularly uh, what to do after conflict, how we can use heritage in ways that uh, help people to rebuild their lives, rebuild bonds that have been broken in communities. Um, so in a sense, it's less about rebuilding the buildings that have been destroyed uh, and more about rebuilding the people by using their own heritage uh, to, to find those ways that help people put their lives back together because mm. I guess the most kind of famous for lack of a word aspect of the research in recent years was the, the Palmyra <laughs> Palmyra Arch yeah. um, <laughs> you say that in a way where you're like oh I'm going to talk I was talking earlier about the, like something like being like a, a thing that you keep coming back to over and over again. So, what? How did the, how did the whole Palmyra Arch come about? Like was... So, what happened was I was running a project at the time uh, that was uh, bigger in a sense than the arch. Um, so, it was my first go at trying to find ways that people could renew their friendships, renew their re- relationships with heritage that's um, maybe been taken away. So that was called the Remembering the Romans in the Middle East and North Africa project. Uh, and it happened to run at the same time that the arch was going up in Trafalgar Square. So I saw this as an opportunity to do something slightly different in that project. Um, the the uh, Remembering the Romans project was uh, about um, uh, getting people to um, uh, have creative responses to museum objects. Um, and so create new memories around them. Uh, and I thought there was a, uh, an opportunity to do this on a bigger scale. So what I did was I sort of installed myself adjacent to the arch for the three days that it was up in Trafalgar Square uh, and invited people to write a postcard. So it was um, possibly slightly cheesily called Postcards Palmyra. Um, and uh, people were invited to write whatever they wanted really there was no particular direction so it could be a memory that you'd had if maybe you visited the site or you're from close by to it uh, or it could be a response to the arch itself and whether you think reconstruction is a good thing following conflict uh, and just really trying to understand how people felt uh, in response to seeing this replica in the middle of Trafalgar Square. What was the general vibe that you got back? Was there quite a discrepancy in what people wrote, or was it um, the general kind of repeated messages that came out? So of it? there were repeated messages. Um, 
I think in any of these things, you should never expect to find consensus. Nobody is ever going to agree. No one will ever feel the same way about a p- one particular thing. Uh, so there were some people who were very positive about it and thought it was a good thing. Um, uh, and then there were some people who were very critical of it uh, and of the event itself uh, and felt that it wasn't achieving uh, the aims of helping people in Syria that it should be achieving which was my personal view as well. <laughs> oh, you were quite... You didn't think that it was a... Yeah, I'm quite a strong critic oh, of it. okay. Um, so, in various different ways. So, of the event itself, um, uh, there was very little information about the arch, about Syria, about what was happening. The arch was just sort of plopped into the middle of Trafalgar Square, no signs. And that seemed to me to be a missed opportunity. Mm to really raise the profile of what was happening and is still happening in Syria um, in in quite a meaningful way. So there were just people who were just confused walking around Trafalgar Square and didn't even know what it was. Um, so quite a lot of the time, me and my team of wonderful students uh, were just giving some quite basic information out about, well, this is, you know, it's from Palmyra. Palmyra is in Syria. It's one of the sites that's been destroyed, etc., etc. So there was that sort of issue... Uh, then there are wider issues, I feel, around um, whether it is right to be doing that sort of thing now. Um, it's been done without any consultation. Um, do we actually know whether people from Syria, whether they're still living in Syria or have now been displaced, is this a priority for them? Um, if they could choose a monument to be reconstructed, would it be this one? And it may well be that the answer to those questions is yes, but at the moment, we don't know what that answer is because nobody has gone and asked. Um, And these are people who've had all sense of control, all sense of ownership taken away from them. Their lives have been shattered. And to me, this just seems another layer of taking away uh, rather than what you could be doing which is rebuilding a sense of control um, and of your own uh, way of looking after your own heritage and your own destiny, I suppose, in the most, um, in the biggest terms. Yeah, because I guess a lot of it boils down to that question of, um, I don't want to say ownership, but that sense of, uh, I don't know if I'm along the right lines there of talking about that kind of, is it kind of sense of sometimes a latent colonialism? Is that what we're I mean, in terms of like deciding what's best and like deciding what's important. I mean, it really, it or, does slightly smack of that as yeah. a form of digital colonialism. And whether that's the intention of the people who made the arch and of many other projects, they're not the only project who's doing things like this. And, you know, one would hope that they do have good intentions behind what they're doing, but maybe not enough thought about how that action can be interpreted, which is that, once again, you come in as the saviour telling us, people from the Middle East, what we need, um, rather than asking um, and enabling um, us to find our own solutions, um, uh, which is would be the way to do it, to learn lessons from the past where 
we haven't maybe done things properly thinking about you know, monuments men type there's interventions. The, there's the thing at the moment where they're talking about uh, people are suggesting about bringing back some sort of monuments men-esque type unit and I'm just like um, I, oh, that's, that's, that, once again it's like as you say is it is that actually really for the benefit? Is that actually... Maybe sometimes people in those situations have the best of intentions, but mm-hmm. it's not quite perhaps the answer to those, those sort of problems that, yeah. that needs... Yeah, it's not the, the best way to go about it. And it's kind of... You know, when you talk about something like Monuments Men, it's like you're kind of looking back at an earlier period of our own history in that mm-hmm. regard, where we're deciding what's best for... What, what's yeah, what's yes. important, which... Um, I was. I don't know if you've seen it. Actually, there was. There's a film that's doing the rounds at the moment um, about just called Destruction of Memory. I have seen it. Yes. Oh, what, yeah. did, what did you think of it? We got shown it the other day at our ah, okay. university. Um, so I was intrigued to see what your thoughts were on it. Uh, it's, it's a while ago since I've seen it, so it's uh, not necessarily okay. that fresh in my mind. Um, ironically, given that it's memory. I suppose just to give a quick bit of background to, to anyone listening, it's a it's a film that covers the last kind of hundred years, roughly, about the destruction of particularly antiquities or buildings. <clears throat> and the legalities of that, where it stands in relation to things like war crimes and and, and how we approach that. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, it does a good job of uh, uh, highlighting what the issues are uh, and the impact of uh, what happens in conflict. Um, I think it probably does a less good job of making sure that people are the focus. The, the focus is still on buildings and aren't we sad that buildings have been destroyed? And of course it's sad and upsetting to see archaeology heritage being destroyed. But the real losers are people uh, and they still don't quite come through strongly enough for me in that um, particular film. Um, and I think it just about manages to tread the line of sensationalism um, so some, it's quite painful to watch at times yeah. um, uh, certainly I found myself getting quite choked up watching some of it and that's because you're seeing quite shocking scenes of, of things being destroyed uh, and where the line lies there um, and this I think probably goes across media as a whole at what point do you not show something um, uh, and so take away some of the um, power that it has by just not showing those scenes um, I think it's something that we need probably as a, as a general whole, not just the makers of that film to, to think about Yeah, yeah. a number of people did have questions afterwards about it and how, mm. how it was presented um, Yeah, I think you're right about in terms of still not putting people at front and centre because it is I mean, I, I, you know, particularly for people that are involved in heritage, it does pull on the heartstrings like, mm-hmm. with, with seeing those emotive images of, of antiquities being destroyed of museums um, being being attacked but at the same time it is also like well you know I, d- I don't want to trivialise it but they are still th- like they're things they, they, the, the people are still the most important aspect mm-hmm. of that um, but I mean it's quite interesting in terms of I suppose that idea of destruction of memory because memory is something you've always been quite mm-hmm. involved in this kind of a theoretical approach to to, to studying the, particularly the Roman world and the yes. ancient world. Um, just to, I mean, I'll kind of come back around to memory a bit later, <laughs> if, I, if I remember to do it. Um, <laughs> I'm always working on memory. But, um, in terms of just like sticking with that idea though about the, like things like the Palmyra Arch, the rendition of it from the, the 3D, 3D model of it, essentially mm-hmm. what it was. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on things like reconstructions in terms of 
do, do you think like somewhere like Palmyra, they should go in and put a reconstructed version of the arch, or do you leave it as it is now because that's now part of the biography of the site, mm, or, mm-hmm. or what? How? I mean, I, there's no, I don't think there's any right answer to it, but it's kind of interesting to see what different perspectives people have on that about mm-hmm. what you do. Particularly now, we are we are actually capable of of actually rebuilding these things using three D imagery. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, I think there's always that danger just because you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should do it Jeff Goldblum told us anything because that's it (laughs) Um, uh, I think in the immediate post-conflict phase is not the time to be making quite quick knee-jerk type decisions about rebuilding Um, and there are numerous examples of where that has happened in the past uh, and it ne- hasn't necessarily had the positive effects that you might think it would. Uh, you need to look at who's going to do the rebuilding, who makes those decisions, um, how many different voices are included in that. Are they the? Are is there a multiplicity of voices? And the trouble with making one monolithic thing um, is that a bit like I said about the arch, you are never going to get a consensus over it you will never please everybody with that one particular action. So what I'm trying to look into in my research, and I by no means have a a fully worked out solution, uh, is how you can do things that allow multivocality, allow flexibility, uh, allow as many people as possible um, to feel that whatever is being done works for them. and so what I've been doing is much smaller in scale uh, and works on a very personal level where people create their own personal versions of their heritage. That doesn't rebuild a site, um, uh, but it might do something a little bit different, a little bit more therapeutic, uh, a little bit more healing, potentially, I hope. So a big part of your work is involved in, in outreach and, and talking to people and discussing these things. Mm-hmm. Oh, do you think outreach is something that is I mean I suppose it's always been there in archaeology but do you think it's changed somewhat over the years the importance of it is becoming more and more well, it's becoming more important overall do you think um, I think people are becoming more aware that it's not good enough just to sit in our little universities doing our thing uh, being paid to do it without showing the value of that um, uh, and without thinking about uh, why what we do when we think about the past actually matters in the present. Um, uh, And I think we're getting better at explaining those things. I think there's probably still more work to be done. Um, And what I find, particularly in the way that I work, is that it's not so clear a line for me, what is outreach, what is research, I don't have any research if I don't speak to anybody. Um, so for me, it's more of a, a cycle and one keeps leading in to the next. So I go and talk to some people, that makes me think in a different way. And then, so it's really quite an iterative process and I hope it carries on in that way. I find it a really um, valuable way of working um, that makes me reflect on my own thoughts um, more than I might if I just sat in a library. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, actually, uh, in a conversation earlier about students and the, how you mm-hmm. can get, sometimes you're talking to your own students, you 
getting feedback from them on your work can be just as important as talking to other academics and but just having that kind of as you say um, a range of opinions that fit mm-hmm. in I mean do you find as well that um, talking about the arch and talking about the different thoughts that people had on the arch did you find overall though generally speaking talking to people that they were quite positive in just talking about it in terms of obviously they might have a negative view on the arch being there but they're quite interested just and able to discuss it and, and have somebody there who's asking their opinion of it mm, I think people really valued having someone to speak to uh, and various people who came up who weren't very happy commented on the fact that there weren't other people there to speak to so we were there um, but there weren't that many people connected to the making of the arch there to speak to um, uh, there were people for whom it was very difficult to speak, so particularly people who are from Syria in Iraq. It's very difficult sometimes to, to verbalise how you feel when you see something like that. So there were some people who were very, very upset on seeing it because it was a really emotional thing to do. And again, I, I think this is something that the makers of the art hadn't thought through that essentially you're poking people in really quite painful parts of their hearts when you do mm. something like this and you you need to take responsibility for how you look after those people once you've done something like that so I was glad that in that particular case I was there my team of students were there even to just give someone a hug you might not even have a, a full conversation that might not be enough um, I think what was also interesting were the conversations that people were having where they might have come in thinking, oh, well, you know, of course it's a good thing to reconstruct. And that's normally where most people would start, I think. Of course it's a good thing to rebuild it. We want it to be beautiful again. Um, but then when you start having a conversation and you start saying, you know, what about memory? Do you think this potentially erases the memory of things that have happened? People can slightly shift in their opinions and you start opening up new ways of thinking about it um, uh, and it was really interesting to watch that happening uh, around the square and I was really really proud of my students um, for going out and having those quite difficult conversations they're not necessarily easy conversations to have and asking people to to think from a slightly different perspective uh, which people were very receptive to which was good because one of your areas of study as well is, is that looking at um, Syria through archives of photos as well isn't mm. it looking mm-hmm. at monuments and archaeology via photos from how far I mean how far back did you go <laughs> the 1800s is it, you know, uh, yeah. so the the archive that I've looked at relating to that um, is probably kind of 19th century yeah. um, photographs um, uh, and uh, I've particularly looked at um, some photographs taken by Petrie, uh, who doesn't really photograph monuments. Um, he has quite strict rules, I suppose, um, over how things should be recorded. So buildings should be recorded by drawing and planning and um, kind of correct archaeological procedures. And um, uh, uh, so what he does photograph is people. Um, just, just the matter of putting someone just knocked on the door. <laughs> yeah, okay. like, that's just the Royal Holloway yeah. Space Survey, which is far less exciting <laughs> than it sounds. I'm just checking how we're using the room and how many of us are in here. <laughs> so, hence the big pause. Um, so, um, yeah, so his photographs tend to be of people, um, which is interesting in itself. Um, and what you tend to find is 
in the photographs, both of Petrie and other um, photographers, when they are photographing buildings, is you start getting particular narratives being told. So people keep going back and photographing the same building. So those kind of early views get stuck <laughs> a little bit. I mean, they do slightly shift and change, um, but there's a lot of responsibility that wouldn't have been aware, people wouldn't have been aware of at the time that has then kind of fallen into what we consider to be iconic elements of the site. And the art should be one of those. It crops up quite early in views of Palmyra. Um, and then it gains its own importance um, in slightly odd ways. Yeah. I don't that particularly well. <laughs> no, it's interesting the idea of like how how monuments are presented like that. I mean, it just reminds me of a really really bad example of there used to be a uh, a web page. I don't know if it still exists or not. And what it was about, what it was about was um, have you have you heard of Tinder? Yes. The, the, yeah. So basically, there was a web page where what it was about was people that their first picture on there was them usually in some sort of pose like reclining or chilling out or whatever in front of the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin and all yeah. it, it actually the number of people that have done it and it was but it was one of those things where you look at it and you're just like wow like mm. these people have no comprehension of what what this monument is yes. but I wonder how many of them have seen a picture of somebody else doing, doing that or, or just they they look at it and they they it look at it as yeah, yeah as an art almost an art installation or a good backdrop for their own picture yes. completely unaware of the actual significance of what it was and yeah. it's that, I, I do find that quite fascinating um particularly in the, the time we're living now where how big Instagram is as mm. well. And you see a lot of people on Instagram taking pictures much in the same way as what you're saying. Like most most majority of people on Instagram are taking pictures of themselves. Mm-hmm. And they'll take pictures of themselves outside of the Coliseum or, mm-hmm. or in front of the Forum or, or you know, in front of the Upper Tower or whatever. Um, but it's interesting because the monument's only kind of half of that. The actual the picture, they're the focus of the picture. The monument kind of comes secondary and yes. kind of is trying to add to them as mm-hmm. a person. I, I don't know. I just find that I find that relationship between people and monuments in pictures, particularly now on social media, mm. a very interesting area and in how they're presented. And sometimes I know that much like that example of the Holocaust Memorial I, I mean there are people that take pictures in front of monuments and they're like I'm in front of the Colosseum and if, but if you ask them what the Colosseum really is they probably wouldn't be able to tell you yes. but the Colosseum itself has become like a status symbol of somebody being cultured even though of presenting mm-hmm. a cultured image because they're travelling to like an important destination just, I just find it a very fascinating topic how those monuments are kind of utilised in that, in that yes, way I think that would be a really interesting research project in that and looking at how people use heritage for status like you're saying in those in those photographs and sometimes the 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 monument itself is almost blotted out you know you can barely see anything it's just someone's giant that's the thing now because you can obviously you can tag where you are as well Mm. so you see people who just simply tag themselves in a city Mm -hmm. and because they're in that city that that's that in itself is a status symbol because they've traveled somebody somewhere Mm -hmm. and you know, I don't know if you can still do it on Instagram. You used to be able to click on it and you could see all the places where somebody had tagged themselves. Oh, okay. But it would be a way of showing that I've moved around a lot. I've been yes. to all these it's famous like places. doing the grand tour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It is. I don't, actually, yeah, no, it is. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but very much so. Um, 
it's because yeah, I remember seeing your talk on the the, the photographs. Mm. I remember you showing images from TripAdvisor where yes, people yeah, were doing Pompeii. similar yeah. sort of thing. Well, yeah. interesting on TripAdvisor, people didn't take very many selfies. Um, uh, and one thing that's been suggested to me is that's because TripAdvisor you sort of have a fairly self-imposed but professional persona that you're you're rating these places uh, but there was one man who photographed himself all around Pompeii he was wonderful uh, and there was another one uh, with a, a, uh, two people uh, <laughs> and it was essentially just their faces you really couldn't see anything of Pompeii uh, and they were excited because they were holding an audio guide so it was us and our audio guide <laughs> okay um, slightly strange thing to be excited about when you're in Pompeii but uh, clearly it was important to them but yeah particularly in Pompeii you see these repeated everybody takes the same photo from the same place and it's probably because you've seen it and you're like okay this is, this is the view you get where Vesuvius is behind and, um, but you go right back and look at the um, drawings of Pompeii uh, kind of pre-photographic um, periods and those crop up again then so it really does start early that pattern yeah. Do you ever see those pictures where somebody's holding up a picture from a hundred years ago? Over, as they put like the camera up mm. and they're holding the picture mm. and they're putting it in front of where like the backdrop of like what, what, what where the picture was taken and what it is now to kind of contrast yes. them as well. Uh, it's just it's a really fascinating topic how mm. people utilise, uh, particularly now with digital media, how mm. it's juxtapose how the past looks with the present and yeah. it, it's almost as I say like. Like particularly with ancient monuments, almost putting that kind of distance or like it's almost you forgetting what the actual ancient monument is and it's more about recreating the photograph from 100 years ago mm-hmm. and less about actually think of it in terms of being a, a monument from 2,000 years yes, ago. Yes, yeah. I mean, what people tend to do, particularly in the um, uh, Pompeii photographs, they try to get all people out of them. They try their best to kind of de-people, uh, unless they're taking a selfie, um, uh, their photograph. So you're, you're also doing odd things, it's virtually impossible anyway in Pompeii to get a photograph where there's nobody in it. So some people are waiting very long periods of time to get a people-free photograph. And you sort of wonder, why is that? Does it feel more ruinous if there aren't other tourists there? You know, what's, you know, for an archaeologist, there's normally a reason you don't want people in your photographs unless they're there for scale. Uh, And that's because you're trying to demonstrate some element of the architecture. But... Why other people also seem to do that, um, I don't know. Uh, I started doing that research and then diverted yeah. off, so I probably need to go back to it. <laughs> I wonder if it's just trying to give a sense of a, a unique relationship they have with the... Mm, this is me and the, the mo- Yeah, it's yes, me, and yeah. The, me and the archaeology. It's me and Pompeii. It's a connection mm-hmm. that and you... As I say, it's about that kind of, I suppose, that focus on the person now. Mm-hmm. And you don't... It, it's them using the archaeology... Construct well, it's getting theoretical. They construct <laughs> part of their identity in some respects, and you don't want anyone else in the picture unless it's like I don't know a friend or a significant other or whatever. But you don't want other people in the background almost because you don't want anything to to else to interfere with that that mm. link. Um, wow, <laughs> it's just the level when you start going through the levels of it. You're like, wow, you get free teeth on that. Um, so, kind of working our way backwards. Um, I suppose actually rather than working my back, so going, going back to the start. So uh, one of the things I'm quite interested in is how did you end up going down the route you did, like to end up become interested in archaeology, the particular period as well? Oh, gosh. Um, so uh, this was 
was probably fairly haphazard. So I had a, an interest in the ancient world, um, which I may not have been able to frame as an interest in the ancient world. So when I was very, very little, uh, I remember picking up a book in school, and it was actually a book of Greek myths. Uh, and I was really interested in that, and then sort of went off and then started reading other books. Uh, and then when I got to secondary school, started doing some Latin uh, and was really intrigued by that. Um, and then when it came to um, choosing my degree, I actually originally, and I, I remember this quite clearly, uh, I'd been looking at um, archaeology and anthropology um, degrees. And I went to my careers um, person, who also happened to be my Latin teacher, which is probably relevant, uh, who said, well, Zena, uh, obviously we're expecting you to do classics. Um, and because I wasn't rebellious then, and not massively rebellious now, but I would probably have stuck up for myself a little bit more. I went, oh, yes, okay, yes, I'll do classics. So I did classics, uh, but uh, clearly archaeology had a pull on me. Uh, so in my second year, I decided... I don't really know why, it just seems to have been on a whim that I was going to go on a dig. Uh, so I went to Silchester. Uh, oh, I didn't realise you went to Silchester. Yeah, yeah, I was in Silchester, one of the really early seasons. So when did Silchester start? Did it start 97? So I think I was there, yeah. I was there the second year that it started. So we were just kind of clearing the Victorian um, uh, trenches. Um, uh, and that was it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the idea that I could touch something and be the next person... You know, the person before me who had touched it had lived 2,000 years ago, uh, and I was the next person. That kind of really tactile, kind of close connection um, blew my mind a little bit. So I came back, and uh, probably to the annoyance of my then tutor, said, can I change all my third-year options <laughs> and put some archaeology in? And uh, yeah, that was that. Did you find at Silchester... Was it also an element of uh, group dynamic as well? I mean, because, you know, when you do things like Silchester, you're, you're camping there for a... You get to know everybody very well. Yeah, you kind of create that really community. fun kind of social yeah. element to it. Um, yeah, and I often think when students, oh, we don't like camping, so it'll be really good fun. You'll love it. And you'll, you really get to know everybody. And it, when you're teaching... Um, and people go on... And it could be any trip. It doesn't necessarily have to be a dig. But those are the points where I find the group really get to know each other well uh, and gel uh, yeah it was just really good fun yeah, <laughs> yeah. I loved it yeah. very happy memories of being at Silchester yeah some cases of my memories of Silchester I don't remember <laughs> yeah, yeah, some, <laughs> some, <laughs> some of the evenings they kind of blur a little bit um, yeah. uh, particularly at the end of Dig Party <laughs> um, so you when you were at Oxford, you got involved at the the excavations at Marcham and Frilford. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So that that was a that was quite a long project. That was a very long project. Yeah. yeah. So I was involved in it initially as a um, a trench supervisor, uh, and then uh, after a few years, um, when I uh, became Chris Gosden's research assistant, we also at the same time became the assistant director of the the dig as well. Which again was a another good fun camping dig with lots of good community there. Yeah, another fun place to be. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, that you you've done stuff with that in relation to the the memory aspect mm, as mm. well. Um, how did you how did you get onto the topic of, of of memory as a kind of theme to explore? So I've been working on uh, religion in Roman Britain because of um, uh, my involvement with Marchand and Frilford. Uh, which uh, 
for any listeners who don't know, uh, is a big uh, rural religious complex uh, just outside Oxford. Um, and uh, while I'd been kind of working on that, I was, I was very interested in religious practice um, and um, how people, how that changes over time, if at all. Um, and one of the things about Marcham as a site is that it seems to have um, some uh, religious or ritual practices from the Iron Age uh, that then um, translate in rather complicated ways through to the, the Roman period. Um, uh, so I was kind of trying to work through these ideas and uh, saw um, a call uh, for the Memoria Romana project, which was run by Carl Galinsky in uh, University of Austin, Texas. Um, uh, and that seemed to me to be the point where I understood what it was actually I was trying to get to, and memory seemed to be that um, uh, kind of framing device that I'd been looking for. Um, so I applied to be uh, um, one of the um, uh, researchers on uh, his project uh, to do a project looking at uh, religious memory in Roman Britain. I was very lucky I got there. Uh, he asked me to to do that. Uh, and yeah, I've, memory's then been a very kind of constant thread through my slightly magpie-esque uh, <laughs> career since that point. <laughs> Because you have a big focus as well as being water, right? Also, the use yes. of water, in, in particularly <laughs> particularly the Near East, like of Syria and Iraq mm. as well. Was that also so? That was my PhD. So that was um, uh, yeah. So it was water from uh, the Roman period and late Roman period in the Middle East as a whole. So it was Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Palestinian occupied territories, and um, Israel, and a very small bit of Southeast Turkey, and occasionally little bits of Iraq. <laughs> so. Uh, Probably going over your bibliography, I don't know if I know as many people that have written as much on latrines. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you can't be a good <laughs> But not just latrines, irrigation as well, dams, etc. Um, I mean, what did you, I mean, does, does, does the water and the aspects of memory, do they kind of feed into, is, that kind of, is there a crossover there that you found at all? Or? Um, yes, I think there is, and I think there was, I think that those kind of things came together at Marcham probably is thinking through the role that a, a watery place had in terms of memory. Um, wasn't didn't particularly come through in my PhD, but that's probably just a matter of chronology, and I just hadn't really my own chronology. I hadn't really got to the point where I was thinking about memory. I'd say my PhD was very um, non-theoretical, <laughs> um, uh, and. Uh, um, so I, you know, I was good at gathering the data and interpreting it, uh, but I, I wasn't really aware that there was such a thing as theoretical archaeology at that point, I would say. Uh, and really that sort of came out through working with Chris Gosden, who can't really help but sort of get thrown into <laughs> understanding that there, you know, theory is important uh, and the ways that we interpret things and the, the lenses through which we do that are important. So, yeah. so yeah, there's probably quite big differences. So if you look at the PhD and then some of the later publications on water, they become more theoretical over time, um, which is where I sort of slightly shift into being a different kind of archaeologist. Because your, your interest in the, the Near East area, does that, does that stem from family connections? So that is a family connection. So um, 
Uh, I grew up in the UK, but my uh, my dad is Iraqi uh, and my mum is British, so I have a, a foot in in both parts of the world, that, those worlds. Is that is it the family connection that drew you to kind of focus to the, the study of that area, part of that, or was it, or was it, or is it uh, kind of more just independent? You just happened to that's the area you ended up studying. Um, I think at the, probably at the time when I was doing my PhD, I'm not sure I had kind of thought about it that much. I think that there is a very clear draw to me now that my heart lies in the in the Middle East, um, and that's a, a very big determining factor over the work that I do now I do it because I feel it's the only work I can and should be doing right now because I have to do something to help um, that situation Um, uh, when I was doing the PhD I'm not sure I was that aware of that but I think it's probably there somewhere in the in the background actually the PhD itself as an idea came out of uh, when I was working for Oxford Archaeology uh, they had their project at Zugma in southeast Turkey, a slightly controversial project because it was a, uh, a project, um, a rescue archaeology project uh, connected to a dam that was being built. Uh, and the controversy was that there was quite a lot of attention to the archaeology, uh, but considerably less attention being given to the modern village that had been forcibly removed from their homes. Uh, so again, you can see kind of threads being picked up later um, yeah. when we start thinking about people and their relationships with archaeology and where the importance lies. Um, but it was at Azugma where uh, the first latrine I had <laughs> fell in love with. Um, and I was like, oh my god, that's really interesting. Uh, nobody, and perhaps that's not a surprise, nobody's done very much work on that, so maybe I should. Uh, so yeah, that's where it all began. It all began with that one latrine from Azugma. Do you... Still one of my favourites. Do you do you get to go out to Iraq at all, or uh, I'm guessing no, like, because of, no, yeah. it's a security situation. I'm um, hoping to. I'm hoping to set up um, a new project. I don't know if it will uh, come off, but I'm um, uh, really really hope it will, uh, which would be um, connected to um, uh, memory again, <laughs> uh, uh, and this time creating some kind of living archive of uh, memories of people um, who are from uh, Mosul in northern Iraq, uh, which is where my family are from. So, May in Iraq have been the, the biggest focus of um, the destruction from IS. Um, uh, so what we hope to do is focus on what can be looked after and protected, which is people's memories, uh, rather than what has gone. Uh, so again, in this hoping to do something more positive um, and healing with what's happening. Is that where you sort of see then the research, your research mainly going in future, like tied into that and following that through? For the... I think so. For for the foreseeable future, that seems to me to be what I can helpfully do. That's where my skills lie. Um, uh, so if I can help people who have been through a terrible time through what I can do with archaeology and heritage, then that's what mm-hmm. I will do. So my focus has become more contemporary. But still, I still think the past is important, but I think we need to think about why it's important in the present and what we can do with it. Yeah. Have you have you heard of things like Operation Nightingale? Is that something you've come up with? I have. Yeah, that's the one for um, that's, um, military yeah, veterans. Yeah, yeah. Who people particularly, I think, that suffer from post traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Uh, getting them engaged in archaeology, mm, getting mm-hmm. them to, to to find a way of 
I suppose it focuses the mind obviously in what you're doing so trying yes, to yes yes so there's like mindfulness yeah. elements yeah. Um, just I talked about this earlier but that, that idea of more ways of utilising archaeology now for mm. um, positive benefits for people mm-hmm. quite widely uh, perhaps in ways I don't think it's probably been done before at least not in the if you go back like beyond the sort of the recent past particularly mm-hmm. um, it's, quite, it's quite interesting over I suppose because I guess community archaeology in this country you could sort of put into that kind of bracket as well, like what you can do with it and bringing people together. But I guess you could say that perhaps now we're starting to realise there are a lot of things you can do with archaeology that can be very beneficial to people mm-hmm. beyond simply, as you we were saying earlier, sitting in a university discussing questions about you know the Roman Empire or whatever, but there are actually like ways you can use it to really help people in the modern world beyond people that are actually in it in a, mm-hmm. in a uh, professional capacity or even even in some respects many people who probably have never given any thought to it before and, and suddenly yeah. are exposed to it and they're actually like oh actually this kind of this is something that I didn't realise was as relevant to me as perhaps mm-hmm. I, perhaps it actually is yes um, it's quite interesting to see how that that, that mindset is shifting because one of the things I, I ask people as well is you know, where, where do they think the, the discipline should go in the future, like particularly the study of the ancient world, mm. like what sort of avenues do they see going? And I, I don't necessarily mean just in terms of what research people want to do, but at using it in, or, or how, you know, talking to people about things like diversity and things mm-hmm. like that, like how it needs to be opened up more and these, these, these challenges <laughs> that, that face us and, and how, how we might actually go about, um, about dealing with those. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so probably the, the, two things and it may be unsurprising that I would like to see as the future of the discipline are exactly that, that we, we um, get even better at um, uh, being in conversation with the public um, in uh, uh, publics um, uh, in ways that aren't just an archaeologist giving information out to somebody else in a very passive uh, way but that is a proper kind of exchange where um, both sides contribute um, uh, and that drawing out of the relevance of the past to people in the present um, I think um, we could um, keep on working at um, and yes absolutely working on the diversity question um, I'd say it was one of the things that I want to look at more for the, the, um, the um, track paper that I'll give um, uh, so one of the the things that I want to do in that is look and get an idea across Roman archaeology teaching in the UK. You know, what is it that we're teaching? Uh, is our teaching diverse in terms of what we teach? Uh, you know, there are not that many people who work on the Roman Middle East. There's plenty of space for more people. Um, you know, it's always quite exciting when you meet someone else who works on that part of the world. Um, but I don't think it's taught that often. Or when it is taught, it's only taught, you know, it's always Palmyra or Baalbek. Um, there's a lot more going on in the Middle East than just those two sites. Um, uh, and I think there's also a lot more work we can do over um, the diversity of the, the people who are engaging in, in archaeology and that. I think that's where those two bits come together, that the better we get at talking to people, um, hopefully the more diverse we'll become as a profession as well. Um, 
Uh, it would be lovely not to be, I think, I'm right in saying the only British Iraqi Roman archaeologist oh, really? in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I've not met another one. <laughs> if anybody listens and you're if out there. If anybody listens and you are, come and say hi. <laughs> Um, so, have you got any other kind of public engagement things coming up on the horizon? You had a you recently had a one day conference on um, classical uh, classical archaeology in the modern Middle East. Am I yes, that was uh, um, that was it was originally a seminar series. It was um, with Jen Baird at um, Birkbeck, who's another Roman Middle East person, um, and uh, yeah, that was um, it was supposed to be a seminar series over several uh, weeks. Uh, but it hit strike time, um, so uh, we repackaged it uh, and did it as a day, and that was a really good day, and that really did get to grips, I think, um, with uh, diversity, so it was, uh, it was three women speaking, <laughs> two of whom have a connection to the, the Middle East, um, uh, and most of what we were talking about was how we work with communities um, to... Uh, define their own um, futures for, for heritage, their own presence for heritage, um, uh, which was an exciting day. Um, what have I, else have I got coming up? Um, so the the big thing I want to get off the ground is this Iraqi project, but I'd also like to do something around consultation over reconstruction. Uh, I don't know what the best way to go about doing that is. Maybe just a big Twitter survey. Who knows? <laughs> um, maybe as simple as that. Um, but I think that conversation needs to be opened up uh, beyond UNESCO, uh, the Institute for Digital Archaeology, um, academic archaeologists. There are other people who have important things to say. Yeah, because you're you're regularly regularly user of Twitter. Um, <laughs> do you do you find it a very effective tool in terms of talking of things like public engagement or talking to other people about the situation, or um, do you just look at it and just go, oh? <laughs> <laughs> there are oh, moments when I'm like, oh god, that's depressing. Um, uh, I'm not sure that it's the world's best public engagement tool. Um, I have really interesting conversations on Twitter, but they tend to be with people I know. Um, and it's really good for knowing what other people in the archaeological community are doing. Um, uh, and there's so much that happens that I wouldn't be aware of if I wasn't on Twitter or you know, various conferences and, and things like that. But um, uh, maybe that's just reflective of my own Twitter following. But I, I don't feel particularly that I communicate with the public over Twitter. Right. I, I think we all hope that we do and that maybe someone's reading what we write on Twitter. And I know that other archaeologists do. Um, uh, and very occasionally somebody that I don't know uh, will um, interact. But... but it's uh, that worry. But it's the yeah. like and retweet. It's not really a good interaction. Yeah, it's also, as you're saying, it's a little bit of an echo chamber as well sometimes. It's the, what you're saying too, and even just like beyond talk about like archaeology, but, you know, aspects of things like politics and stuff like that. I mean, on the one hand, it is very polarised in general. Yeah. We, I think you have that difficulty, particularly if people arguing with each other. When, when you're not doing it face-to-face, that's when it gets mm-hmm. very difficult. Uh, people tend to say things they wouldn't say in person via a keyboard. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just in general, like sort of talking to people that are kind of similar to you in the first place, and and how do you reach beyond that? And it's kind of I suppose linking back to that idea of diversifying the the subject area, and how yes. do you reach beyond and, 
um, the ways of doing that and yeah I guess with social media that can be the, that can be the difficulty of it even though you can reach a wide audience it's not a very varied audience sometimes yes yeah yeah and um, and I think particularly I mean I'm not that provocative on Twitter um, so I suspect if I was a bit bolder <laughs> maybe yeah. some of what I said might kind of go a bit wider but um, uh, I'm not sure there's always a need to be provocative just for the the sake of just you know so that you end up trending on Twitter no because most people are just going to judge you for it probably if, you, if you're being intentionally <laughs> provocative yeah. you're trying to get it up uh, yeah <laughs> so I think yeah it's an interesting one but yeah and when people say oh well you could just advertise your workshop or whatever on Twitter it it sort of works but it doesn't work as well as people might assume that it does yeah. um, well for one thing you're only going to get other people who are on Twitter um, which is not actually everybody um, uh, and um, if you only tweet in English you'll probably only reach other English speaking people so one of the things I keep thinking I should do is start tweeting in Arabic but um, I don't know if I'll ever get that okay. <laughs> so maybe yeah tweet bilingually not sure. yeah. maybe uh, that's another thing actually I'd like to see more of is um, writing uh, research in different languages. So we're very, very English heavy. Yeah, tell me about it. That's the the, the, it's the problem I find now is having grown up in that kind of milieu. God, our languages is just the, the challenge. It's, it's just <laughs> you don't realise. It's not really. I don't think it's something that's pushed in this country like it is elsewhere. That you know, having other languages is actually a very beneficial thing to mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of it, it's become so easy, become quite lazy because most people abroad will speak some level of English. Yeah, uh, and then you just realise that even. Yeah, you're on a basic level, just be able to say things like please, thank you, etc. Mm-hmm. It can actually go a long way, and yeah. people will respect you a bit more for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, as well, I don't know, I just realized as I got older and I met people that were bilingual, trilingual, whatever, uh, and they just suddenly start speaking another language. I was just stood there like, wow! Like, <laughs> I was just, just in awe. I just think it's so cool. Like, somebody, somebody can switch like that, but um, God, I've been trying to teach myself German now for a, for a number of years, and it's a slow process. Um, I think I've, you kind of hit that point where you have to spend time abroad as well to really mm-hmm. be able to develop your language but um but actually on that note and I'll, I'll end on this as well uh, in a couple, <laughs> couple of weeks time i've got to go to, i'm going to italy with our ma students so um it, i'll just remind myself when i'm there to to take pictures of myself standing in front of monuments <laughs> and see i can compare them when i get back um, but yeah um work on my italian as well in between now and then um cool right thank you very much you're welcome Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies, who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.